That's right. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought this up because this is probably the most profound revelation I ever had. And it changed my level of confidence and thinking about building bikes so drastically. I can't even remember when it happened, but, but here's basically the trajectory of it. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, where I share my interview with Sam Whittingham of Naked Bicycles in British Columbia, Canada. This is a particularly good episode. So uh, I've, I've been gone for about two months, not doing episodes. I apologize. We'll just call this the start of season three, and it's a doozy. I think this is one of the best conversations I've had on this podcast. Uh, so Sam's been building bikes for a while. We go over his story in the interview, but uh, some of the best parts of this, I think, pertain to this question of how you differentiate yourself as a frame builder trying to start your business, how you get the ball rolling. I think that's a particularly difficult part in the career path of a frame builder, how you go from being a hobbyist or an amateur or a, a noob and then trying to start your business. It gets very hard to get the ball rolling because each bike is expensive to make. It's kind of not worth that much, and yet it took you a lot of your time and money to make, and uh, it's just a really hard point in your career. And I think the discussion about that was particularly good, and I just had a lot of fun talking with him. So this one's kind of long, and I think it's all worth it, and I think you should listen to the whole thing. Oh, and I also want to say the discussion that we had toward the end of this about bike geometry, about mountain bikes with forward geometry, sort of long front centers, I think that's particularly good and particularly useful. There's not, I think as, as a frame builder, it can be kind of hard to learn about bicycle geometry because there is not a whole lot of good source material like printed books or uh, blogs or, you know, you can, you can sort of like react to... Uh, the published geometry specs of all the different bike manufacturers. They're very conservative generally. It's, it's just kind of hard to, to chart your own course and make great new stuff. And so Sam's been doing that for a long time. He's got a lot of really valuable ideas, I think, about uh, bike design and geometry. And so I think that's a particularly valuable part of the later half of this discussion. I mean, the, the sort of desire to put a bike together... I think it's always been creeping around the back of my brain. I mean, maybe it wasn't bikes in the beginning, but it was like Lego and, you know, tree forts and the rest of the thing when I was a kid and also trying to keep my two-wheeler alive. Um, but I would say the, the, real, the real moment was um, my, my actual background is in uh, set design originally. That's what I got my, uh, like, theater oh, very set cool. and lights. Uh, yeah, I so know people have done that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's sort of my original um, training. That's what I went to school for. That was my work for quite a number of years. But what was happening is, is uh, and that's like my early 20s, and uh, I'm 48 now. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in between gigs, I was trying to find work. Like we had, I had little kids at the time. We were flat broke. Um, so money was coming in in fits and starts. And so to fill in the time, I mean, I was bike racing. I'd always been a bike rider. That was always my first passion. Um, so I was working in bike shops. And 
you know, for a couple months here, a couple months there, sort of in between. And one of the shops I was working at in Victoria, BC, um, called Fairfield Bikes, they had a, uh, they had, it's one of those crazy shops, old time shops where, you know, you go into the dungeon, right? We actually called it the dungeon and it was just filled with like vintage bikes, parts, stuff, tube sets, lugs, um, frame jig, but nobody, nobody was using it. It was collecting dust. It was just sitting there. And so a couple of us that were mechanics there, you know, kept looking at this and we're like, you know, like how hard can it be to build a bike? And this is now mid nineties, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, this is pre YouTube, pre the Renaissance of frame building that's happening now. I didn't even know that that was something you could do. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I kind of knew and I know you just did an interview with Paul Brody. I, I kind of, I knew Paul Brody. I kind of knew his story with Rocky mountain kind of, mm-hmm. but again, I always assumed it was like you build for a big company. Mm-hmm. That's like that. There's no such thing as a boutique builder. The closest thing was maybe Maranoni cycles. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Yeah. Sort of back in Quebec, they've been going for 40 years now, maybe might have that wrong, but long time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so anyway, we, we had, there was this stuff sitting there, and I found an old Paderak manual, right, like everybody. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, okay, let's see. I need a hacksaw, vice, files, torch. Uh, I guess I kind of need to know how to braze or weld or something. I better maybe go do that. So I went and took like a community college course. But all of this was still, it was almost like an afterthought. Because I still didn't believe you could actually. I think I think I bought a set of tubes from Marinoni, and they sat there for a year before I even did anything. Because I was just oh. like, every time I would try to jump into it, I'd be like, I don't even know where to start. Mm-hmm. Like I don't. And uh, but finally, we jumped in, built some, built a bike. Um, the other mechanics they built each built themselves a bike. Went through this process, and at the end of that, I went, Oh my God, that was fantastic. <laughs> that's like it's like everything I love it's bicycles um, I was heavy into design already with the theater yeah. work and stuff um, they and one of one of my uh, skills that I was really good at at the time was uh, model building um, like the little maquettes for the what the sets would look like mm-hmm. and hand drafting this is you know pre computer drafting um, so I was already really good with my hands um, and, you know, working on small things. And all of a sudden, it all just was like, oh, this is like everything. This is like the design work, it's the artistic side. Um, and, and then it's the whole racing, riding um, kind of thing. Built these bikes. And, uh, and I went, that's, that's what I want to do. I, I want to do more of that. The other two guys went, ah, that's a lot of work. I think I'm going to go back to wrenching. <laughs> it is a lot of work. <laughs> you know? And right from the beginning, I went, oh, I realized right from that first one that there's a, there's a particular personality that's required to make a go of this whole frame building craft. Yeah. Um, and, and if you don't have it, it's, it's, it's going to be real tough. You have to kind of love the suffering and it's not really suffering, but you have to, you have to like the work. Yeah. You need to be stubborn, I think, to like, totally. You, yeah. ca- you can't half-heartedly, you just kind of, eh, eh, no, like you'd really need to go yeah. in. Yeah. And, and real early, you need to figure out that, um, that mistakes are a good thing. Yeah. 
because you're going to make a lot of them. Um, and that's how, but that's the only way to move forward. Um, I always say like the, the thing I am most terrified in frame building and now, you know, I'm getting on to 20, what, I don't know, 23 years now since I built my first frame, um, is like, I dread the day when I look at a frame and go, Hmm, I don't think I could make that any better. Yeah. Not because that, and not because that frame is like the best thing that's ever been created. It's the opposite. It's because I'm no longer smart enough or intelligent enough or have that I can see what I'm doing wrong anymore. Because yeah. I guarantee there's things wrong with that frame. I just can't see them anymore. So now what? I mean, part of the fun of this is like learning, moving forward, mm-hmm. making the this one better than the last one. Um, I love that part. I mean, that that's probably what I crave more than anything. So if you get to that point where you can you can no longer make it better, it's not that it couldn't be better. It's that I can't make it better. Yeah. Yeah. Not being able to assess what you would even do. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, I can see exactly I mean, why, why that would take all the fun out of it. Yeah. The best, the best frame I ever built was the first one until <laughs> I built my second one and realized <laughs> that the first one was a piece of garbage and it just keeps going like that. Right? <laughs> yeah. But you can't, but until you've, built that first one and then gone through the process and iterated as many times it's not until you can look back and realize what it was you were doing wrong you know yeah and it's hard if you're a perfectionist type and you Mm -hmm. know enough about it to know that you're not capable of creating perfection yet and it kills you to like ship that (laughs) to sell that to someone or to put your name on it and, and say goodbye but it's like it it's sort of a really helpful tool as you develop and with a lot of things to be able to like make something, learn from it, make the next thing, make the next thing. And so uh, I think myself and a lot of people into frame building, it's like you don't even want to make them and finish them because they're just, they're not that good yet. And so it kind of hurts to like, (laughs) to call it done. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. I mean, that's where it is. It's, but, and I, and I think the only way you can kind of creep around that and, you know, be happy with yourself is 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 to have a, a different end goal for why you're making that thing. Um, if your end goal every single time is to make a masterpiece bicycle that is the be all and end all of bicycles, you're really in trouble because <laughs> you're not going to do it right. Nobody yeah. does. So it has to be. You know, every time I build a bike, I mean, now it's so it's very much client based, of course, like I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to decipher um, and interpret the needs and desires of the client and really get inside their head um, and combine it with what I think will, will make them the most happy as well as, you know, be true to my brand and the rest of that stuff. But, but it's really that, that, that's where the work is. And so that's the end goal for me. Are the welds perfect? Well, they're never perfect. There's going to be a little flaw, a little flaw there, whatever. Is it, you know, exactly what I would build for myself? Well, probably not. So in my own head, is it the perfect bike? Never. But I'm trying to get as close as possible for that for that client or whoever I'm building for, you know. Yeah. Um, and let that be the goal. And, you know, if they go, if they come pick it up and, they take off with a big smile on their face and Mm -hmm. there, what what else do you want really? 
yeah move on to the next one yeah absolutely um so i think i i think i meandered on that one that's okay that's basically how i got started yeah so did you i mean you you identified pretty quickly that you really wanted to do it and that it spoke to you that it checked all these boxes uh do you feel like like was the stage um set set stuff that you were doing was that uh entrepreneurial were you working for someone did you ever have this feeling like you needed to do your own business and that you were that personality or uh you know how how did you find yourself uh, starting your own thing yeah yeah definitely so um i'd already figured out that i did not want to work for somebody else i'd figured that out far before um and i mean even the working at those bike shops for those couple of months it was okay but it you know it just not it's not my style um the the theater work i was doing was very similar to like building frames for people it was contract based i was hi- i would be hired by a theater to you know work on the set for a play come up with the blueprints come up with the model oversee the the building and construction um and then move on to the next one it was, it was kind of like a two or three month process so it's like building a really complicated bicycle um in terms of time and how but that's that's really where i because my god are there some strange personalities in theater <laughs> so but that but that's quickly where i learned to and i find that that's that's probably the most important part of uh, the frame building process is is really listening to the client and what they want you have to be true to what you know like i have to be true to what i know how to do and yeah. make sure that i'm um you know that i'm not that i'm not uh just saying yes to everything for the sake of it which is really it's difficult to get away from in the beginning um you get much better as you go along but um yeah, it, it it I guess to answer your original question, it definitely I I knew that I wanted to um yeah, not work for somebody directly, although of course, you know, you have a client, so that's in in the end that's kind of your boss, although I like to think of it more as a collaboration for sure. Yeah, and if you do it um, well, then then they sort of pre-select for a frame builder who whose work speaks to them and so hopefully they want the kind of thing that you have established a reputation for and you get to mostly do things your way while like listening to their individual uh, sort of needs. Absolutely. And I think that that has got to be the hardest thing in the beginning uh, for new builders for sure. And I mean, it was probably, oh boy, 10, maybe more years of, of building bikes before I really had the confidence to say, no, this is, this is how I build, or this is what I prefer. And of course you don't say it like that, but, um, in the, in the early days, I mean, you're hungry. You, you feel like if you say no to this client, the, the universe is going to implode and you'll <laughs> never get another sale ever again. <laughs> and you have to say yes to every recumbent tricycle that comes along, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Um, the other thing too is that, and and I mean I've learned to learn to spot these customers coming, but um, it's difficult. You have to you have to ask yourself 
in the early days, and this is a hard one, is, is, is why, why is this person coming to me? I have no name. I have no brand recognition. I've built four bikes, ten bikes, whatever. Why are they coming to me? Right? And that's sort of like the cynical side of me, right? But you do have to answer that question. And often it's because they feel like they can either walk all over you or your prices are way lower than everyone else because you don't have the confidence yet. Um, that's usually the case. Um, I mean, that's sort of the cynical side of it, but that's really hard to get out of that cycle. Um, yeah. And in the beginning, I mean, I certainly was saying yes to a lot of projects, which now I look back on and cringe, and I think, oh my god, the <laughs> the uh, you know just the 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 stress of it and yeah, and not being super confident. It's like, well, I think I can do that, or I know, or you know, and then you build some prototypes, and and for what you know, something that in the end you're going to charge fifty dollars extra for or something. It's like yeah, um, I think that that's the hard, but you kind in a funny way, you have to, you got to go through that. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, unless you're some sort of savant that is so confident and yeah. And what made 200 bicycles on your own, um, and threw them all out Yeah. before you, before you even hang a shingle. I don't yeah. Know. It's hard. I think, um, I, I wouldn't trade the way that I did things for any other experience because it got me where I'm at and I feel pretty good about that. But yeah, I am sometimes I get a little bit of jealousy or at least I'm happy for the people that I know who get a job working at Moots or seven or one of these places where yeah. they get a lot of experience and they get very good very quickly, maybe a, a narrower skill set, like just finish welding or something, but man, do yeah. they get good quickly and they have so many people around them uh, correcting little, you know, uh, issues with technique or something. And totally. they get to see yeah. the whole process. Um, I, I would think if you had the opportunity to, to work at a place like that for a year or two, um, or even longer or whatever, and just jump around as much as you can when somebody is they're short in the mitering crew or something is learn everything you can. Yeah. That would be such a good way. And then also be, that might not teach you anything about business and marketing. You would, you'd need to learn a little bit about that and customer relationships, um, one way or another, but th that would be a really good way to get yourself prepared. I would think for the, the business of being yeah. a frame builder. Yeah, I'm right with you. And I think if I had that opportunity, that would have been the correct way to do it. Although if I, if I'm honest to myself and think back to where I was at at that time, it, one of the reasons I didn't pursue that is because I was still looking at it I, I've, I've approached frame building very, very cautiously and slowly right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I built that first frame and then built a few more for myself, basically just to try things out. And then it was, it progressed as most people do. It's like your buddies go, Hey, you know, can you build me one? And it's like, Oh, you know, okay, but don't tell anybody. And, <laughs> <laughs> and here, you know, and here's, and, uh, you know, and they just pay for the tubing or whatever. But the whole time I was still doing theater work and continued to do, I, I was doing both for probably the first 10 years. Cause I still hadn't, I still wasn't confident to go. I'm a frame builder. Um, so I was, I was saying yes to crazy projects, but I was still somewhat selective just because I had to, uh, you know, for time constraints because of my other job. Um, but I think for me, that was the right way to do it. I'm not someone, and I still to this day, I've never gone into debt. I've never borrowed money 
to set up my shop. It's basically bootstrapped, you know, like if I've got a couple extra bucks, I'll buy another mill, you know, or whatever I need or upgrade the welder. Or, mm-hmm. And that, that's just been an ongoing process over all these years. And it, it wasn't until probably 10 years into the process where the bike building was just obviously uh, a financially better and time and, you know, I could do it at home. Yeah. Uh, it was just a better fit than the theater work, so I just I just basically stopped. I just started saying no to the theater, and then really went full full on. Um, you know, and that's when I jumped into like going to NABs, started advertising a little, set up a bigger shop, and and said okay. So really, you know, you're right. I could have done that apprenticeship in a year or two at Moots or Marinoni or somewhere. And that probably would have gotten me there real fast. Um, but I feel like this this long, slower way, yeah, okay, maybe it's not financially as smart, but it allowed me to go at my own pace and figure it out, figure out what I really wanted to do. Um, whereas I I do see a lot of newer builders try to go real fast, um, go into debt. Um, you know, buy a lot of tooling, start building go- bikes, and then go, wait, either this isn't what I want to do, or I actually haven't figured out what my brand is or my style or what type of bikes are. In it. It's like they haven't sort of, they haven't had the luxury of the of time. So it's probably a quicker in, like you say, I think, but for, for my personality, yeah. it's probably better the way, the you know, the slower approach I took. Yeah. Or at least in hindsight, it feels like that now. Yeah. Yeah. I think also if you just worked somewhere, it wouldn't, it just teaches you a different thing. It teaches you the skills, like the hard skills and the work, but it doesn't necessarily, I just feel like it's a very different thing to have your own brand. That's a magnet for your right customer. Something that stands out. You know, when I talk to Carl Strong, he says, you know, the, the things that new builders struggle with the most is differentiating themselves and building bikes quickly enough. Well, you know, how do you, how do you differentiate yourself? You might be really good at making bikes, but he also said, I listened back to that interview more than any of the other interviews I do. Cause yeah, I, for sure. Carl Strong <laughs> anyway, is like the guru yeah. of how to do this properly. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah but um, he said, you know, it, a lot nowadays, a lot of it is fashion for better or worse. I don't think that's all yeah. bad, but anyway, yeah. Like uh, how are you going to differentiate yourself? And if you work somewhere, it, it teaches you the work and it doesn't necessarily teach you anything else. So you might have a knack for that, but giving yourself yeah. the time, like you're saying, you just have time to like kind of, grow up with it and like, you know, I don't know, like, you know, your, your tastes sort of age and develop and you've built all these different kinds of bikes, you've ridden them, you've seen them and it means more to you. It's not just, I think, uh, something that I see a lot of new builders do and I did, and it makes total sense. It's just, you know, like the formalism of it, like, you know, you get really into fillet brazing or bilaminates or something and it's like, you're, you're just new to learning the form at all. And so that becomes like a big preoccupation and it makes sense. But I think at some point, a lot of people, they get comfortable with their skills and they can, their purview, their focus can kind of expand to maybe like a larger picture of, of the the whole bicycle or something. And it's giving yourself that time, I think is, it makes a lot of sense. That would be really valuable. Absolutely. And I think I've got two points for that and I'll probably forget the second one as I talk about the first (laughs) one, but here we go. (laughs) And see, I've already forgot the first one. No, 
but one is uh, the first one is to say that it's it 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 would also be really disingenuous of me to say that, and I often get this is like, well, how did you go from theater to bike building? They're completely different, and my answer is always they are not different at all. Like the skill sets are remarkably similar. Mm-hmm. Like the important skill sets, I should say. Yeah. Because of course, when you when you when most people think about bike building, or even as a novice builder, you typically all you can think of is brazing. You just see that torch light up, yeah, molten brass, crazy paint job. Whoo! Look what I did, right? Like that's <laughs> that's kind of the image of it. That part of frame building is so small. Yeah, it is. And and. Once you learn it and practice, that's the easiest part is plumbing. I mean, yeah, you know, like the bike building is just plumbing, really. And it's like, how are you going to do your plumbing? Um, so the skills I picked up, you know, through all that theater design work of, of, of just proportions, space, working with personalities, clients timelines because i mean that's the other thing you work in theater man it's there's opening night right (laughs) yeah and you work back from there there's dress rehearsal and the set has to be ready for dress rehearsal and you work back from there the carpenters have to start work on a monday and there's 30 of them waiting for your drawings and you work back from that you got to have so scheduling and timeline i learned so early on way before i was building bikes that you've got to work you've that time schedule man and that time will disappear so fast like it's like you know the whole thing it's like you you estimate it'll take five minutes so budget for 10 but you Mm -hmm. know it'll take 20 it's like (laughs) (laughs) it's so figuring that kind of stuff out really and you know i still get that wrong i mean of course always want to be optimistic but um i think that answers both questions there but it was basically uh yeah just just saying that it's it's uh you know that's and i think i think that what that's what could be missing if you get too specific and i think that's true of any field um there's so much now that that goes into my bike building that i learned from other things yeah um that you wouldn't it would be kind of impossible to pursue that um with a plan if that makes any sense like i don't know how you'd and that sort of uh, you know when people like carl says you know you look for a way to differentiate yourself well if all you've ever done is work in a bike shop and and then go apprentice at a bike company and you don't really have any other interests outside of that or any skills or yeah. any other jobs you've done. Well, if you don't have, there's not a whole lot, there's not a whole lot of a broad base to draw from for, you know, where are you going to get your inspirations? And, you know, um, you see a lot like, and, and I worry these days too, it's so easy with, um, you know, like Instagram and social media and, all of our own little uh, bubbles we find ourselves in, you know, echo chambers of just like, 
we just, you know, and I find myself doing it now too. It's like, you just follow frame builders. So you're just seeing what they do, Yeah. but man, get it, get out of there. Go, go see what the motorcycle guys are doing or go, you know, I, I went down a rabbit hole of like archery and bow makers and stuff, Oh, that's cool. <laughs> you know, like not that I'm going to make any, mm-hmm. but just, it's like, you realize that there's people out there that are doing things similar to us, but it just tweaks the way you look at it and it just gives you a different perspective. Um, yeah. you know, ta- tailors, I mean, man, clothing and how, how clothes are put together. And to me, that's way more complicated and interesting and scientific than the plumbing we do as bike builders, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Um, and I still wear shitty thrift store clothes. It's yeah. not like, it's not like I go and buy these clothes, but I'm fascinated by the process of it. Yeah. And I think there's, I think having that broad base, you're going to find your niche that way. Um, and I think, I think a lot of builders spend too much time, um, just looking at their belly buttons and they need to kind of look at the rest of the world for a bit. Yeah. I notice with, uh, you know, I, I wasn't particularly into fabricating and machining and, and, you know, CAD or any of these skills yeah. that are my whole world now prior to bikes and, and bike frame building was my whole entry point into all that stuff. I mean, I had like sort of made some crappy MIG welds in high school, uh, but right. yeah, not really, you know, a- anyway, uh, for the longest time, all of the experiences that I had that informed my sense of how to make things just came from following other frame builders. And, uh, in 2015, when I got a Bridgeport and I started watching these Tom Lipton YouTube videos and, and then over the years, finding more and more people in machining and, you know, sheet metal in different places to follow. And you realize, um, that, I mean, I think it makes sense a lot of times why frame builders build bikes kind of the same way we've built them forever and are pretty conservative. But, uh, man, when you, when you pull your head out of that and you see the whole rest of the world, you realize how most frame builders are just barely scratching the surface of what's possible, the techniques and the process and the thought process and what can be done. And just, it just blows my mind more and more all the time, how much I thought I knew about how you could make things and how I didn't know anything. And I still really mostly don't, but, uh, yeah, I think and more than just fabricating techniques, uh, you know, the, the whole perspective of everything, but yeah, frame building is, it's a very, um, inwardly focused and tightly defined community. And yeah. it just doesn't seem to draw like people love the tradition of it. And I get that. And that it's, I love it too. It makes sense. But, um, it, I think it is, you need to pull yourself out of it. Yeah, for sure. And it's like all, you know, like all cool traditions. And they, again, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I, I, I love where we come from. Um, but it's like, where are we going to, you know, like, okay, that's fine, but I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not particularly interested in just building museum pieces, you know? Yeah. I'm fascinated by them. There was so much learned, but cause that stuff was new at some point, you know? Yeah. Lugs and fillet brazing. That was a new way of building at one point. Um, and, uh, and you know, and, and in those early days I tried all of it. Like I used to, I used to build in aluminum, um, I used to do fillet brazing, a lot of fillet brazing, um, like most beginning builders, lugs, tons of bi-lam stuff. Um, I got into TIG welding pretty early on, but it, but in the mid-90s, TIG welding was kind of, it was kind of, it, you know, I don't know what the word is. 
it wasn't it wasn't seen especially before titanium and and the rest of it 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 didn't have that cachet you know TIG yeah. welded frame was like kind of a cheap it was cheap right mm-hmm. um luckily we're kind of coming around on that i think because there's so much there's so much carbon fiber out there and then there was aluminum for years and years and years you know uh there's enough time has gone by now that the the cachet of a tig welded steel frame or i mean in my case i'm basically exclusively doing titanium now but um you know the, the luckily that's that's come full circle again and i mean it used to be i couldn't even build a um, and a, a full aluminum bike or a, or a full steel bike, it had to have like I don't know if you you, you will not you probably weren't even born yet. But <laughs> <laughs> like the uh, like in the early days of carbon fiber, like you had to have the carbon fiber wishbone uh-huh. t- stays. N- Nova would sell in. those kits. Uh, I don't know if they still do, but w- like I think they still 2010, do, yeah. 2011 when I was first looking totally. at that that web store. Yeah. I did so many of those. And it was like, I never quite, I'm like, well, I guess it's not lighter. <laughs> um, I, and I mean, I had enough engineering know-how to know it wasn't really doing anything. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was, it was the fashion, it's the way it was done, and I was kind of a slave to that at the time because, you know, I wasn't confident enough to know any better. Yeah. Uh, and then I started experimenting. I, I totally broke out of that. I got tired of it. And that's when I was sort of doing all, I, I mean... I started doing a lot of these crazy show bikes for nabs and um and kind of went kind of went full to like how far can we go the sort of cherubim oh yeah um school of like awesomeness or weirdness (laughs) i don't know yeah well, I think the, the funny thing, though, about, you know, being a newer builder and maybe being afraid or I don't know if that's characterizes you or everyone always, but sort of we'll use that as shorthand, being afraid yeah. to take big risks uh, I, it, it sort of works against you because you might lose individual sales and stuff. But I think like one of the most attractive qualities for for, you know, a business or an individual or whatever, a lot of times it's just, you know, people like to follow people who know what they're doing and have a sense of direction and, and, you know, confidence is just like, it's just magnetic, you know? And so like, if you have something, you might have a hundred thousand people hate it, but you're probably going to have enough people who love it to like stay in business. And it just seems like, uh, it's, it's kind of hard. I mean, you need to, you need to believe the idea yourself. You can't just I feel like it just doesn't work if you don't believe it. And so, you, it, you yeah. know, getting yourself to believe it is enough. But uh, when you have an idea that you believe in or a sense of direction or an aesthetic or, or you know, an idea about how bikes should handle or whatever it is that matters to you that is your thing, uh, the sooner you can really start to define that, I think the sooner you're going to have people who are like you, I've been watching yeah. a lot of Quentin Tarantino interviews on YouTube lately. I just really like his <laughs> movies, but he'll be talking about like, oh, you know, I just wanted to make movies that I liked, you know, like people talk right. about you need to write for a certain audience. That was me. Yeah. I was just writing for myself, yeah. but I really, and um, there's something to be said for that. You know, if you make the bike that doesn't exist yet, that you think is just excellent, uh, yeah. chances are somebody else didn't even realize they were waiting for that. Absolutely. I mean, I think, and there was, I mean, I can define that moment in my frame building trajectory to, um, I think it was, what the year was it? 2007 NABs. 
no, 2008. 2007, I went to NABS for the first time, and it was when I was like, okay, I'm going to, like, push this, push the, the business forward. Like, I need to open it up, um, get some more awareness. And at the time, it was like, well, the way you do that is you go to NABS. NABS was just on the up and up at that point. And, and, uh, and we just took a collection of um, customer bikes, and it was my usual mishmash at the time. It was, like, some aluminum, some steel... I wasn't into Thai yet. Um, and we, you know, pushed everything into a booth with some furniture we bought at like the, uh, I think it was, cause I think it was in Sacramento or something like that. And we bought some furniture at like the local Home Depot or whatever. And just like, <laughs> did like everyone else and just piled some bikes into our 10 by 10 booth and had a great time. And, but I, you know, but this is the way I've always approached things. And it's the same, it goes back to my theater days. It was like, I went, well, this is, this is great. And, you know, people were kind of into the bikes and, and it was like, again, going back to Carl Strong thing, well, how do you differentiate yourself? Right. And I went and I looked around and went, well, our booth looks like the other 200 booths that are here. There's some bikes sitting on the floor, all crowded in there. You got some business cars, got a couple of t-shirts for sale. Great. You know, our bikes look fine. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, it was, it was nice to, hang out with all the other builders. That was the best part of that. Yeah. And to just, and to just also see them up close and go, okay. Cause I've been kind of insular up here in yeah. you know, the wet coast of Canada here. <laughs> and it's like, um, just to see that that was okay. But what I quickly learned is, is like, okay, okay. How, how are we going to differentiate? So I went back and I said, okay, I'm going to apply the skills that I have. And so for 2008, I'm like, every booth has a bunch of bikes in it. Okay, so we're going to bring one bike, right? They're all crowded, so we're going to get rid of that. We're going to create empty space. Like, you, you, you can't show something off if it's yeah. just in a sea of everything. Okay, everybody's bikes are on the floor. Right, I'm going to put mine up in the air. Okay, there's no lighting on most of them. I mean, a lot of, a lot of people have figured this out now. Mm-hmm but I would like to think I may have had something to do with it <laughs> at the time. I would imagine because, you did. <laughs> I mean, who knows? I mean, but because that year, and then instead of just taking some customer bikes, I, I took all of these crazy ideas that had been floating around in my head. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to put these into one bike, right? I'm going to try. And it was this crazy, like, nickel-chromed, bilaminate, fixie, lots of wooden stuff, wooden, you know, some weird seat masks and um, just so much stuff. That bike took me probably two months to make of just working every day. Wow. Um, brought it to the show, put it like, you know, basically on display, right? With light shining on it and all this kind of stuff. And it's a lot of theatrics, but I was also really proud of that bike. But I also... I was not confident. I thought this thing was going to flop, but it was an all in. It was like an all or nothing, all in kind of moment. I'm like, well, this is what I made. It's all <laughs> I've been working on for two months. I don't actually have anything else to bring. Uh, people are probably going to hate this, but let's see what happens. And, and that, that bike ended up like it, it it won just about all the major awards that year, like President's wow. Choice, People's Choice, Best in Show. And that's back when the voting was done by everybody, all the frame builders. Hmm. 
So we all voted on the like yeah. rather than I think now there's a a, a panel right like yeah a, a jury, jury panel. I don't know I haven't been to NABs in a few years but um and uh, and I went oh okay it's a weird bike um, I put my heart and soul into it but it's me right yeah um, it's not necessarily what I want to ride every day but as far from a creative let's see what I can make point of view I mean and that's the other thing too I mean that's a point in frame building trajectory I think we all go through this first you're learning how to build the bikes and then as you start to get more confident I think we all go into this show off stage I call it where it's like (laughs) how fancy can we make it how many curlicues can I put in those lugs how you know can I do can I lug line them and then do a lug line within a lug line? I remember seeing <laughs> Joe Bell. I think Joe Bell brought a, a lug bike to NABS one year, and he'd done like, I don't know. I'm probably It was probably only one one lug line like within a lug line. I don't know if you can imagine that, right? Yeah. Um, but in my mind, it was like five. <laughs> you know, like five all like a 30 Rain- seconds of a rainbow colors it was the uh yeah. the lisa yeah. frank like a, a trapper keeper of a yeah totally I'm sure yeah. in my mind that. that's what he did so <laughs> i think we all go through this phase it's like and especially nabs in those early days trying to just show off show off show off show off i've completely come back from that i mean even naked brand i always wanted to get back to more of the um just really well made titanium raw uh-huh like how? What is the least amount I can do and still have a beautiful bike? Yeah, and that an works inher- really well. And an inherently more difficult style of bike to differentiate yourself with. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Um, but I sort of had to go. I like I, I kind of had to go through that process. And Nabs, I think getting back to what you were saying, it did. It it had the it had the desired effect. Like all of a sudden, people went from. I have no idea who this Sam guy is and why the hell does he call his brand naked to like, Oh yeah, that guy. Yeah. He made that weird, crazy wooden thing that Lance Armstrong bought, you know, like that was like, (laughs) you know, all of a sudden it was like, Oh, okay. I no longer had to sell, sell myself or sell my abilities. People just assumed they were there. Nothing had really changed. It's just Mm -hmm. the assumption. changed. Yeah. The awareness. Yeah. Um, and ever since then, I've been trying to get as far away from um, those kinds of bikes as possible. <laughs> so that gives me two questions. One of them yeah, sure. is people always say that, like, people will, like, whine and complain about the way that awards are done at NABs for this reason or that reason or, you know, whatever. Um, and it, there's maybe a lot at stake. And a- anyway, the reason that I would think there's a lot at stake is that people will also say, yeah, but, you know, Awards sell bikes. Uh, is that yeah. is that your experience and from the things you've heard from other people? Um, that's a tough call. I don't... I'm not sure I saw... I don't ever remember seeing a dramatic rise in sales that I can directly attribute to NABs. And arguably that year I had about as as big a success at NABs as you could possibly have. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But, but I don't, I don't remember it. And, and I think going back to what I said before, I don't remember it translating into like a ton more sales. What it did do. 
and in some ways, and I'll get to this in a second, and is is that it? I actually lost a bunch of sales. I think. Um, but what it did do was get my the awareness out there, and from a long term point plan point of view, whatever. Not that it was a plan, but um, it has absolutely helped in the long term. Okay. Because I now have that history. It's part of um, you know my brand and my mis- mystique, if you want to call it. Yeah. That. <laughs> right. Which you know, I I know it's bullshit, but. You know, you got to build that stuff. Yeah. Um, well, um, part two of the question but, then yeah. was just, I mean, so you can bring your bread and butter to a trade show. You can bring the bikes that you make and sell every week. And those are an example of what a customer could actually buy from you. And so there's an argument to be made to just bring that because that's what you really yep. want to sell. Or you can bring the 300 hour bicycle that is a total money pit and you would never make one for somebody because it would have to cost $60,000. Uh, yep. But you could bring that too. Uh, do, do you feel like you learned a deep lesson, like never bring a crazy show bike again? Or do you think it served its purpose and you're, you're proud of it? I think both are... I think you need to do both to the extreme level. So <laughs> I think what I quickly what I quickly learned is that you got to do something. I mean, again, we keep going to what Carl said because it's just so true. You you got you got to shine somehow. Um, you know, people need to pay attention. You know, you have to do something. So for me, that was the was the easiest way was to do a crazy show bike, um, and get attention that way. Um, and I think, but once you have that attention, then you can flip that. And now you should be like, if I go to, if I was to, if I was to go to nabs now, um, I would probably just take a really good example of what I want to build and sell, you know, yeah. on a regular basis. And you have but again, really... I might be real careful about it. Like I might just bring, you know, just my, you know, I do a lot of these uh, particular, like, mo- um, uh, like working really hard on like uh, mountain bikes the last couple of years, specifically in particular style of hardtail. So it's kind of become, kind of gotten known for that, or yeah. at least around here. So, you know, probably bring something like that because it's something I've obsessed over and worked on last little details i know how it works i know how it behaves i know how it rides it's something i'm 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 confident in building so i would probably do something like that and again it's not a fancy show bike it's something i actually want somebody to 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 play and ride for the next 20 years you know like it's a real bike um but i think but you can't do that until people know who you are because if if they already are confident in your abilities and they've already they already you already have a backstory that they kind of know about, I think then you can then you can go back to the basics. Yeah. Because the bike itself that you're making for a customer might be quite plain Jane, but the client buying it already already has this whole history and backstory, and they know that that's all poured into that frame. Yeah. Um, that's why they're, I mean, most people I, I think are buying from builders, not so much because 
of the bike, but it's the process of working with that builder and uh, it's the whole process, right? Yeah. Um, and so, but if you were to go the other way, if nobody knew who you were and you just took, um, you know, a great, perfect, plain Jane, awesome bike to the show, nobody would even look at it. They would never find out who you are because you're in a sea of beautiful bikes. Yeah. Why? And we're all magpies. Like, you know, even if somebody went there with full intention of, okay, I'm going to find a really sensible <laughs> builder. I'm, I'm not going to look at anything else. I'm going to go straight, you know, to Carl Strong. <laughs> yeah. You know, and just get a really, really good bike. What am I doing over here at Cherubim? <laughs> <laughs> you know, how did I spend three hours over here looking at, some nickel-plated lug. Uh-huh. That's not what I came here for. The, so, you know. <laughs> the bike shop, I my first bike shop job, they had uh, they had a time trial bike that they had hanging up, and they had a fat bike, and this was kind of before fat bikes really took off. Yeah. And I remember they they pointed out to me at one at one point, they're like, you know, we don't really expect to sell that. You know, like maybe at yeah. some point we'll sell one or the other. But like those are like a talking piece. Come, people come in and and they say, "I'm just looking," and they walk around. They don't want to talk to you really. They kind of want the salespeople to leave them alone. But you can start a conversation with that oddball stuff. And then turns out yeah. they were ready to buy a hybrid, and they bought a hybrid. And now you have seven hundred dollars in the till. And you know, totally. uh, yeah. it's just uh, if if you have that point of reference or a conversation starter, these are a little bit different things. But I can see how having won the show with multiple awards with a really outlandish bike would kind of loosen people up and be like, you know, five years later, they talk to you about your very straightforward bike. That's totally practical for their needs. But they say, you know, I was in here looking at this bike five years ago. That's, that was a beautiful thing. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I think you, I mean, you basically nailed it. And I mean, it's taken me 20 years to figure this out and you just, you just said <laughs> it in one sentence there, but well, I'm trying to pull all these nuggets <laughs> out of yeah. your head so that right. I give people a reason to listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I think we nailed it there as far as, you know, because it is, it is the toughest part. You, uh, I think when people buy, when people buy bikes or at least when they come to buy a, a custom, I don't even know. I don't even know what to call them. Handmade bike, custom bike, bespoke bike. None of these yeah. words seem, yeah we, we we have a dial we have a, we have a vocabulary problem but um when they come to get a bike built by me let's put it that way um it's it's very obvious these days that it, it's it's not it's not necessarily the bike they want it's the and it's one of the reasons one of the reasons i don't grow like i have there's there's three of us here there's there's my wife Andrea, who does like, um, um, she's great. She does the website and, uh, and a lot of the books and, and she's also like the, uh, um, she comes in and says, Oh, you're not going to do it like that. Are you? <laughs> she's, she's the, the honesty, right? Yeah. Essential. <laughs> it's totally essential. Yeah. Like, uh, and then I have one other guy, Dave, who works with me most of the time, but one of the reasons I don't get any bigger than that is if I get any bigger than that, I'm a manager. Yeah. Um, and I'm not a builder anymore and I would have to delegate too much of yeah. the personal side of things. I mean, again, I think Carl talks about this 
yep. in multiple different places and why he went to that trajectory of building up the business and um and luckily you know as a mentor i've had people like carl talk sanely about this kind of stuff <laughs> and and i can and then i went ah okay don't don't do that um and it seems like the only successful builders out there are either ones who've stayed really small or at least come back to being small after failing at the midsize or somehow managed to go huge and, you know, become yeah. the Tom Ritchie's of the world, right? Yeah, and I would say, um, you know, you, you never know anybody's real story until you know their story. And it's yeah. very dangerous to assume, and the longer that I'm in the bike industry or on the periphery of the bike industry or whatever. And the more people I talk to, you hear it over and over and over and over again that you just assumed because of the presentation and because of the, the nice company vans and all these things that the, the trappings of, of, you know, success or whatever. Well, it turns out they were nearly broke almost the entire time they were in business and then they went out of business. And it's just, uh, yeah. you never know from the outside what the real deal is, what the real story is. And the bike industry is a hard place to make a buck. And some people are absolutely making a buck, but um, yeah. you never really know from the outside looking in. If you get to know people well enough, a lot of them will tell you uh, how it really is, but you yeah. you just can't assume from the outside. So you, you the worst thing you could do is build your business model on the assumption that it's gonna work out if you just pattern yourself after these other companies that quite possibly never made any money to begin with absolutely and i'm sure um i mean as i as, as i watch them come and go over the years i mean i can i can kind of smell them now <laughs> <laughs> you can you kind of see you go ooh, yeah uh, scroll through their gallery look at their website and you're like yeah these guys are struggling even though <laughs> they might have the they might have some beautiful bikes they might have yeah but i'm like there's no way for that price and that level of experience that they are yeah you know, um, that they're making a go of this and that's fine. Like, I think, I mean, not that it's fine, but I think that's, it's normal to struggle in this business for maybe many years. Um, I would say I never really made money at it for probably eight years, 10 years, but I had the theater thing to fall back on. And I didn't, I didn't cut out the theater work until until I was uh, becoming quote unquote profitable and by profitable in the frame building business for me, that just simply means I can pay my bills yeah, um, and uh, keep the lights on and keep moving forward. Um, it does not mean turning some multi-million dollar profit, yeah. obviously. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's a it's a tricky one. I mean, I I think for everyone, as long as as long as you got you, you do need that passion for it because making making the money part is definitely tricky. Yeah, no, it doesn't happen by accident. That's for sure. I think yeah. the people who my my impression is the people who have been the most successful at business in in the bike world, it wasn't it wasn't as a direct result of their passion and brilliance in what they did. It was yeah. that they made it a priority to focus on business and to study and to apply themselves to that question. 
And yeah. not everybody wants to do that. And that's fine. Like you do not need to live your life feeling like you need to be something you're not or whatever you do, whatever you want to do. But I think, um, it's not like a meritocracy in terms of like what amount of money you take home re reflective of how talented you are. Cause there are so many people who are ridiculously good at their craft and struggle to, to make a lot of money doing it. And that's not necessarily a problem. It's, it's a personal question of like, how much money do you need to make? How independent do yep. you want to be of, you know, your spouse or, or a day job or whatever it is? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's keeping all that in balance. Um, and, uh, I'm certainly, I'm not, I'm not great at it by any means, but I think I'm okay at enough, enough business skills and enough bike building skills and enough of the overall sort of jack of all trades, master of none to keep things moving along, keep me interested, keep customers interested. And I mean, I, th I can't remember who you were talking to, but I think this is really important too, is, uh, and I'm pretty sure this is in the, one of the podcasts um, I listened to of yours. It was, um, and it, it really got me thinking about it too. And I think I'd always had this floating around my mind, but it was a good reminder and that was and that was that you you owe it to the to the client to be around in five years yeah. ten years um that was probably the carl strong one but it, it could have been a number of them but yeah i yeah. know exactly what you mean though yeah if, it's like if you go out of business because you're giving everybody too good of a deal that doesn't necessarily serve their long-term interests Absolutely. And I mean, that, that comes around to pricing and being honest about, and, and of course that's difficult because in the beginning, who, you know, who, who are you and why would I pay you money when I can go to this other reputable builder and, and give them the same amount of money and know I'm getting a good product. So, you know, in the beginning you kind of do have to undercharge, but I don't know. I don't know the secret to that one. I mean, I know yeah. there's some people that say, nope, you got to charge full pop right from the beginning. I'm like, but then, but you're not, you don't have the reputation. You probably aren't worth it yet. Yeah. That's where you know? I think, um, there's so many elements of it. I think if you were really good at fabricating a bicycle because you had worked in a production facility, then you would know that what you were selling somebody at least was like the welds weren't going to break. But there's yep. more to it than just fabricating. You know, like the design needs to be right for them and the customer yep. experience right. needs to be right. Or, you know, I mean, like if you if you pay a bunch of money and then there's no communication and it comes three months late and now the riding season is over, like that, I don't know if that's worth full price either. That's right. And it, it, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's there's certain things that, only, that can only be had with experience, um, really. Um, for instance... I, the, the longer I do this, the more I concentrate on the design and consultation process with the clients. I used to like, okay, I just need to get the, I just need to get the basic information. Da, 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 da. I just, I just want to get those primary numbers so I can go to the workbench and build this beautiful bike. Now it's the longer I do this, the more that I flip that and realize that that is really that's what I'm, I'm not selling a product. I'm selling a service really. Yeah. And the service is I'm trying to create some version of this dream for this client that they have about the experience they want to have on a bicycle. So typically when they phone me up and say, Hey Sam, can you build me a bike? I'm like, sure. Great. My first question is not as follows. And I think this is where we all get trapped. 
is I do not say what kind of bike. Because <laughs> as soon as you say that, you're you're right into the normal walk into a bike shop. Yep. What kind of bike do you want? Because they're all on the floor and they're already they're already dictated for you. Yeah. So I very consciously start the conversation with where do you ride and what kind of experience do you want to have on your new bike? Nice. We don't, I, I try to keep the details of what kind of bike out, uh, out of the thing as long as I possibly can. Yeah. What's right? an experiential thing? You know, it's like what draws you to want to ride your bike every Saturday or every day or whatever it is. It's, it's the yeah. experience. And so like, talk about the nature of the experience that you want to have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and just trying and I and I realize the longer I do this that it's it's more about those phone calls, emails, conversations. Um, that's where I pour my time now, and it's 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 like it's like anything. I mean, uh, painting is a good example of this too. You want the best paint job in the world? Painting is again super simple. Painting's not the problem. Prepping the damn building the frame and prepping the frame for paint. Yeah. That's how you get a nice paint job. Yeah. The paint will just go on by itself if you've prepped it properly. Mm-hmm. It's the same when you're working with a, a a client. If you lay the groundwork so that you're like you're both nodding and going yeah 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 you know like they're excited that they're 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 learning they're learning new things. I'm like oh okay this guy's cool he's gonna he's he's gonna actually ride this bike not hang it on a wall. Um, you lay all that groundwork and then you get this conversation going and whenever possible, I get them to come here. It's been tricky this year with COVID and the rest of it, but whenever possible, try to get them to come here for fitting consultations. You know, we pour through the paint sample box and, and that's really the, that's what they're paying for. Right. And if you do all that properly, the, the, the end product, the bike is just going to fall out of that. It's just, it's going to like build itself almost, especially, in, you know, they've been doing it long enough that again, I keep calling it plumbing, but it really, yeah. it should, it should be as simple and practical as that once you've laid the groundwork. Yeah. Um, and if, and if everybody's real confident going in and you deliver that bike to them, I mean, it's always a surprise to someone who's never had a, a custom bike built for them. They're always like, okay, okay, I'm going to come pick up the bike and uh, I'm going to budget like three or four hours so we can dial in the fit and the sizing and stuff. I'm like, uh, yeah, we, we probably won't. We shouldn't have to do any of that. We, it's like we did all that. If I've done my job properly, you should come here and sure, we can, we can have a beer or a coffee or whatever while you're here and pick up your bike and take some pictures and stuff. But honestly, as far as you should be able to I should have asked so many questions and we should have had so many conversations already. By the time you jump on that bike, there should be nothing to do. You just, I want them to have that experience that they were hoping like from the first crank of the pedals. Yeah. Uh, I don't want us to be tweaking saddle heights and going, ah, maybe a shorter stem, maybe a longer stem. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that happens inevitably. Um, but if we've done our homework, both of us, myself and the client, then We've already done that, and then we really can just like have a beer, take some pictures, and go for a ride. Like, yeah, it, sh- it should be as seamless. 
<laughs> and easy as that, because that's what they that's what they were hoping for in the yeah. first place. Yeah, and it's always such a surprise to them when they're like, uh, "Okay," uh, it's always like because <laughs> they're, they're so used to going into a bike shop and there's a whole process, and then it's like, "Okay, but can you put this saddle on it and uh-huh. what stem?" And then they go home and it's not right anyway because yeah. they've probably been fit by somebody who's never really done bike fit and. They're trying to sell something off the floor anyway. Yeah. Um, something you said yeah. made me put two ideas together, and it seems sort of profound to me, which is uh, differentiating yourself being so hard, and then you were talking about you know people are used to this experience at a bike shop. I don't know why, but whenever I think of the question of differentiating yourself as a frame builder, I always go to like differentiating yourself from other artisan builders but i feel like there's a huge amount of value to be had in marketing yourself to your customers in the ways that you're different than the other experiences that they've had at bike shops because probably a lot of your customers yeah it's like i don't know why this has never been very clear to me before i'm just thinking realizing this now but like yeah like it's it's a very different experience and even if there are other handmade builders who could also give them this type of experience they're on your website right now and they're reading your copy right now and they're looking at your photos right now so like what a time to make that impression that's right absolutely and i mean i i and i'm glad you brought this up because this is probably the most profound revelation i ever had and it changed my level of confidence and thinking about building bikes so drastically. <laughs> and I can't even remember when it happened, but but here's basically the trajectory of it. Yeah. Ever since I started, and especially in the you know, in the early days, this is the nineties and there there you know, the, the, the handmade thing hadn't sort of wasn't a thing yet really. Um so people would come constantly and they would ask the following question. They would say, why would, I build, why would I buy a bike from you when I can go to the bike shop and get X bike? Like, why, how, and, or, and the other way they would put it is, how can you compete with the, how can you compete with Trek? Or how can you pe- compete with Specialized? I mean, they have teams of engineers and very smart people and marketing is like, how can you compete? And this, bothered me so much is like existential crisis because they're absolutely right like it's a it's a good question Mm -hmm. how the hell do you compete right so for the longest time i worried about and i would say i probably spent 10 years wondering how can i compete with trek how can i compete with specialized (laughs) how do i compete and then in a flash one day and i don't even remember somebody said it to me or i just finally figured it out or what and i went and i think i was just so tired of thinking about it i said well i'm not going to compete with them and i think that was the moment where i went yeah wait hold on so that's, <laughs> that is the answer that's yeah. the answer right there you don't compete with them i do because there's things there are so many things i can do that they can't what are those things those things are talking to them like where else can you you know, you can't phone up specialized and yeah. talk to the talk to the guy who's going to fit you, build the bike, paint the bike, deliver it, have a beer with you, go for a ride. Yeah, that's what you're selling. It, that's that's what I'm selling. Yeah, and I mean to wrap up with 
you know, the long-winded thing I was trying to describe before. That's basically it. You don't compete with them. Yeah. You you differentiate yourself by by offering the services that they can't and never will be able to. Yeah. Because they're they're on a growth model. They're on a sell as many widgets as possible model. It's the same reason I don't grow. It's probably the I'm I'm sure if you get right down to it, uh, um, you know, Carl Strong went back to being a one-man show because, and I know that he spends a lot of time, you know, talking on the phone with his clients and stuff. So I'm, I'm sure he's got, I, I'm not sure he said it in, his, in the same kind of words, but it, it's got to be part of his philosophy, obviously. Yeah. Um, and it's, and it's probably the best advice you could pass along to a new builder is that you got to figure that part out is like, don't try to, you know, be the best welder necessary. I mean, try to be the best welder, Yeah, <laughs> but that's not, that's not the thing that's going to differentiate exactly. your, yeah. you. That or, alone won't do it for you. Yeah. Or especially trying to compete with, um, you know, the big boys. Um, I mean, they just, the, you know, there's nothing and it. And on, in the same vein, it's, you can always kind of smell this insecurity in builders when they say things like steel is real or Philip Brazing's the only way or, <laughs> you know, carbon is crap or I'm like, you're just saying it because you can't work in those mediums <laughs> yeah. because there's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things. Yeah. You know, any of those alternate, there's many ways to build a bike they're all very good in very different ways. But if you're going to be a custom builder and you want to differentiate yourself, you have to figure out what your skill set is that those guys can't do. And usually it's not the building part. Yeah. They can all do that. Yeah. It's the experience that the client gets. And frankly, just the, uh, I mean, the other way I used to say it is, 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 uh, you know, very honestly, and it's part of Naked Bikes. I mean, Naked was about being really open about this stuff. I've always been really open about sharing my philosophies and ideas. And, you know, if somebody phones up, I'm, like, happy to tell them how I do things and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But it was, um, it's it, it's that I used to say, I, I, hey, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to build you the best bike in the world. I can't. I don't have enough skill sets. I'm not, I, I, I don't. I don't know how to do that, but I can guarantee that I can probably build the best bike for you. Yeah. Right? I can take all of these things, which is way more than just what the lugs look like or, you know, which derailleur is on it or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is, right? Like, well, it's not the best bike the in the world because it only had XT. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But XT might be, yeah, might be the best combined with everything else. Might because when be you break best. it off, it doesn't cost nearly as exactly. much as, yeah. You and maybe it. that's more yeah. more valuable. And you were listening yeah. enough to your customer when they told you about what they do and don't like that you knew that. Yeah, to know that this guy does not need an XTR derailleur, right? Yeah. Or whatever it is, you know. Or... um I mean, I'm always getting, you know, I'm always getting in trouble, um, by, you know, for, for downselling customers. <laughs> I'm like, you don't need that. Like, 
you know, for if you if you go with XT instead of XTR, you can like you could you could pay for a trip to Whistler. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll get way more out of your trip to Whistler than you will out of the XTR kit, which you won't even notice after the first couple rides anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, you know. uh, I mean, I'm if gonna, you want that, go for it, but yeah, I'm going to take yeah. an opportunity. Um, let's talk about Whistler. Let's talk about Canada and the places that, uh, you get to ride that inform your experiences, your, your decision making sure. about designing bikes. Uh, are you, are you, I, I don't, I don't know your geography exactly. Are you near Whistler or, um, if you talk to a European, I'm in a different country. Um, if you talk to a Canadian, um, really close. Uh, it's if I want to go if if I want to go to Whistler, for instance, it's I'm uh, two ferry rides and about seven hours of driving. Uh huh. That's so, that's uh, totally close. that's a weekender right there, man. Yeah, well, uh, that, the that the videos I've seen tough. are incredible. It uh, looks like just a total hoot. It is. I mean. With I, I to to be fair, I've probably only been to Whistler a couple of times. There is so much riding in this part of the world. So I'm on uh, Quadra Island, which is a little tiny island between Vancouver Island and the mainland of British Columbia. Um, so it's really kind of middle middle of nowhere by most of the world's standards. Mm-hmm. Um, but from here, this is a mountain biking mecca. It's ridiculous. Vancouver Island in general, the lower mainland, so you've got like the North Shore. I mean, it's where the term North Shore comes from. Um, Whistler, Squamish, uh, and then all of Vancouver Island, Cumberland, and I mean these these names they may not mean much to you, but around here, it's yeah. Basically, every community here is a thriving outdoor mecca. Really, I'll use that word again. That's but. so cool. The the climate um, is, I mean, uh, Canada is generally northern, it's generally colder, but being close to the Pacific, you have the, the temperate effects of the ocean, and it's not uh, quite as snowy all of the year. We're temperate rainforest, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Pacific so we Northwest. Get, you know, yeah, totally. It's We're very similar to sort of northern Oregon, mm-hmm. and certainly Washington. Um, yeah. You know, at least for the Vancouver Island lower, what we call the lower mainland, which is like Vancouver, Whistler, Squamish area, um, we're all very coastal mountains. Yeah. Um, we can pretty much ride all year long. A lot of rain for sure, but that's also what gives us all of our great geography. Oh, dirt. man. I'm dirt jealous. Stuff like that. <laughs> um, Although middle of February and we haven't seen the sun because it's been overcast uh-huh. and raining for two months, you might change your mind. <laughs> it's uh, I think that's where they shot most of X Files was in Vancouver, right? Uh, yep. Yep. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's if you know what X Files looks like, which uh, it's yeah. a beautiful landscape. Um, yeah, totally. So excellent riding. I mean, I know that you have been riding bikes for a very long time, and having that right there helps you make. Uh, the best bikes you can. Uh, you had suggested we talk some about forward geometry for all styles of bikes and radical geometry experience, uh, experiments. Um, uh, let's talk some about how you design the bikes and those particulars because uh, I'm interested in that sort of geometry discussion. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, in general, I think I think you touched on this at some point too, is, is uh, it's very easy, and I think a lot of builders do this when they start. I certainly did is you just tend to like go, 
God, I don't know, kind of a can of worms, and you try to read up on bike geometry, and there's, there's like, really nothing out there. I mean, there's sort of the, I mean, everything, the, the best writing on bicycle geometry was written in the 1890s, the sharp bicycles and <laughs> tricycles, and there's really been nothing, every, everything since then has been either absolute crap or at best kind of a good guess, so there's there's very little out there, so it's, tricky when you're getting into it in the beginning so for me the only way to get out of that was just through trial and error empirical let's test it Uh, and i've i've always been kind of that way and i think this goes back to i mean i used to race like streamliners and recumbents and stuff which you're getting into geometry that is so far out of you know quote unquote normal bike range Mm -hmm. That I that I, I I quickly learned through that process that there's a wide range of rideable, workable yeah. scenarios, and this arguing over whether you know 69 degrees is steep and and 68 is slack is is kind of silly. Um, <laughs> you know, when I was living in a world where you know, backwards rake, let's try that, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> backward head angle, you know, whatever it is, yeah. short wheelbase, long wheelbases. So, I mean, that, 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 let's just start with that. That sort of informed my willingness to like go to the extremes. Um, now, of course, when I'm building a bike for a client, I have to temper that mm-hmm. with their expectations of what they deem acceptable um, and that can be a struggle sometimes. Um, it's always difficult when people come in and they, they, they have a very, what they think is really clear. They think they know why a bike behaves the way it is. And it usually comes down to a couple of numbers, mm-hmm. um, treated, treated in isolation. And it's almost always things like head angle, chainstay length, bottom bracket height. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, what's the front center? And they're like, what's that? <laughs> I'm like, well, you know what the chainstay length is, but what's the front center? Those work together, and that gives you, you know. Yeah. And you quickly realize it's like, okay, this is, and that get, that gets into the whole discussion, trying to get these, trying to get people on the same page. Um, and in, and sometimes you just build them what they want because they're happy with it, they know it works, and you're like, like I shrug my shoulders, and I know that I could have built them something that is, you know far more progressive and if they gave it some time they would actually be way more enjoyable and mm-hmm. it would be a little more future proof but you, you you know you do have to temper that right because i'm not always building a bike for myself obviously yeah um so that's sort of the two those are the two extremes that i have that i have to work within right it's like the my my willingness to like experiment hard and then the expectation of the very conservative client occasionally. Um, and then yeah. some, now having said that, I mean, to get down to specifics, I have certainly, um, I've gone all the way from, I remember when I moved back to, to where we are now on Quadra Island, it's really, it's old hiking trails. It used to be old hiking trails and really tight. And I was new into the, you know, it was fairly early on in the bike building days. And I was like, okay, I need a, I need a mountain bike. I'm going to build myself one for um, this area. Okay, so it's it's really tight. I'm having trouble getting around the corners and 
all this kind of stuff. So what, what should I do? I know. I'll make the shortest wheelbase possible. <laughs> That'll be perfect. Because, again, I was thinking about it in isolation. All I could think was, everything's tight and janky. Therefore, I need it to be as short as possible so I can get over and around things. Mm-hmm. And I rode, and, and like, you know, and I rode that bike for a year, and, and, and um, you know, everybody used to just call me OTB Sam because I was just over the bars, like... <laughs> <laughs> it was so ridiculously short and steep and it was a hoot but it was completely the wrong way and then over the years i've been going longer 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 and and you know there's i mean it's become a cliche this longer lower slacker thing and that's you know there's that's that's a that's kind of a shorthand marketing way of saying what's going on but you can all of a sudden but I've been doing that for a number of years now is working in that direction, but not for the sake. And, and, and I like to take the, I don't, um, I don't know how to explain this exactly, but, um, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways that that has been done quite badly. I feel, Mm -hmm. um, all of a sudden you can see it now. There's a bunch of companies that as of, 2020 or 2019 for a few of them and i'm sure by 2021 there it's all of a sudden you see a lot of companies are 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 suddenly catching up to what a few of us have been doing for a number of years um with the sort of forward geometry um for most people and especially in the mount and in the the mountain bike world and especially the more trail enduro like the more extreme side of riding it's pretty obvious why it works. And the more I look at it and stare at it and play with the numbers, I go, well, of course, why weren't we doing this before? Yeah. Um, and a lot of it comes down to, um, comes down to wheelbase really. Um, um, you know, if, if I, if I was going to define what makes the handling of a bike, uh, behave in a certain way, I think we, we've put way too much emphasis on head angle, especially, I mean, to me, head angle has almost become a dirty word. <laughs> I just wish we could get away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's to me, it's so irrelevant in the handling of a bike. Um, and yet people put so much emphasis on it. And I mean, just to, just to paint a picture of why I think it's irrelevant. What's happening is if you want to make a bike more stable, what most people would say is, oh, yeah, I can make it slacker, 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 slack head angles. That's st- slack head angles are stable. Well, slack head angles aren't stable. Long wheelbases are stable. What is one of the ways you get to a long wheelbase? Well, by slackening your head angle. Mm-hmm. But it's not, but some of the worst handling bikes were. Um, you know, if you go back maybe five, ten years ago, when companies were starting to work towards slacker, slacker head angles, but they weren't longer yet. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, those are horrible bikes. Yeah, they just shorten the cockpit. So many <laughs> short cockpit. The wheelbase is still short, short, short because they thought that made them what you know lively and I don't know what. They're just horrible. And so all they were doing, but now you've got 
but now you have all your and still long stems because short cockpit so to make it fit you had to run a long stem so now your tiller is way out in front of you <laughs> um, so those bikes just jackknife so badly um, when you push them hard or turn hard they want to oversteer immediately oh uh, yeah and that's what most people are feeling um, and you combine that with this still short wheelbase like the wheelbase is still really short um uh you, you just you're just like and so you'd see okay so what did people do to counteract that well they weren't ready to make them long yet cuz you know we were still arguing over 26 versus <laughs> 27 versus 29 and yeah. everybody knew quote unquote that 29s were sluggish and slow and part of that was blamed on the longer wheelbase that you had to have with 29ers i mean but they were still kind of ignoring a whole bunch of other factors so there was this whole time period where the only way you could make those short but slack bikes stable was to go with even shorter stems. So now you're really over, t- like you're over front of the sort of, oh, you're not over front of the wheel because you've sort of fixed that with the slack head angle, but you're, you're in your, but your center of gravity is getting dangerously close to the steering axis of the front wheel. Yeah. And, you know the way the geometry of a bike works when you when you turn into a corner the bike sinks and it tends to accelerate or flop or turn harder or oversteer i mean whatever term you want to use and in extreme cases it goes so far as you jackknife and catapult you all of the and the only way to get away from that was to go to wider handlebars just basically give me a long enough lever and i'll yeah pick up the world right so They've got all these problems going on, so I know we'll solve it by using wide handlebars. So for the longest time, that's that's kind of what people were doing. But even back then, I'm I kept looking at this and going, this is this this is this is all, and especially from um, sort of the streamliner racing days, because I mean, you know, we're we're setting world records at 135k an hour, or 82 miles an hour, the stability wow. is everything, right? And we played real hard with steering dampers and and um, and on that I was I was running a backward stem so that wow. you could get the wheel even further out in front. So I knew from those days, you want a stable bike, you run your stem backwards, you get that wheel out as far <laughs> as you can. But it wasn't slack, right? So longer wheelbase, but I knew from those days the the head angle was. Uh, like 72 degrees right yeah and so for the longest time i've always even even before i i felt confident enough to go to what we now call like full forward geometry because uh, I, I i frankly just couldn't find tubes long enough yeah to build what i wanted so i thought well it, i must be doing something wrong because if i can't find the materials to do it then i must be too far outside the box even though in hindsight, of course, I'm like, well, I should have, you know, I should have followed my gut because I knew what the solution was. But um, so even in those old days, I, uh, I was a really early adopter of super short stems, long top tubes, and actually not very slack head angles. Because to me, the, again, going back to head angles, I, I, it's, it's just not the important factor. And you don't want to get your center of mass too far out, like, um, 
if it's too slack, the steering angle is coming back at you. Um, it's not in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but... Um, and so for a long time, I was building mountain bikes that had short stems, long top twos, but weren't particularly slack. Um, and, you know, by, and by today's standard, they've become quite steep. I mean, I was building a lot of like 68, 69 degree head angles, but long top tubes, which is giving me the stability I wanted, um, or what I wanted at the time. With the long, and it was all about the front center, front center, and then of course you balance your weight with how long your chain stays are. But really, getting that, getting that front center long enough, um, and that does a that does a whole bunch of things. Um, the main one being, it's in the same way a twenty nine er rolls over better than a twenty seven, and twenty seven rolls over better than a twenty six. The longer wheelbase is the same kind of thing because if you imagine you approach a bump and your front wheel goes over it mm-hmm. well if the wheelbase is longer um your the the angle or the abruptness that you feel as a rider is far less i mean yeah. the cadillac versus the smart car right um it's that's that is massive in mountain biking especially yeah. around here where i mean small bump amplitude up down it's crazy i mean it's it's the reason we run big tires you yeah. know uh and by big tires i mean any whatever you consider to be big in a mountain bike whether that's two inch gravel tires or four inch fat tires i don't care but <laughs> you yeah. know but that's the, but the that wheelbase can do is as much as or more than going from a 26 inch wheel to a 29 or going from a 2.2 to a 2.6 or a three inch tire. It's, yeah. It's the same kind of difference. Well, I had that and, experience that I went from a very old school, you know, it was a 2011 Kona unit or something like that. 2013 It was a, it was a, yeah. you know, cross country geometry, 29 or uh, pretty steep by today's standards. And, uh, and then I built this bike that I made for my YouTube channel, which is, Pretty pretty long as eight hundred fifty millimeter front center twenty nine er actually had yeah oh yeah yeah that's my boy <laughs> <laughs> well I was talking that's to proper numbers so and you're over eight hundred and and you're you're in the right ballpark yeah um I was yeah. talking to Peter Verdone who's one of the few people who does write and publish about this uh very very yes. opinionated polarizing guy but he he talks about this stuff. I know Peter very well exactly uh, if he's you know a, him you know he's a good friend of me of mine. Yeah, and so uh, he he kept telling me he's like, don't don't go halfway on this. Don't like kind of no. try it out. Like if yeah. this if the point of this is to learn from it and to to see what you like and don't like about it, you should go whole hog into it. And uh, so I was already kind of halfway through the design, and I was like, yeah, I, I think he's right on this point. And so I went to eight fifty, which is pretty good. And so I'm uh, my experiences are relatively how limited. T- sorry, can I, how how tall are you? I'm six six foot. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And uh, and it's a sixty-five head angle, and I don't remember, the the chain stays are about as short as you can make them for a twenty-niner. But it, I think it rides beautifully. I suspected that it might climb poorly. I don't think so. It climbs way better than my old bike, and I suspected it's the opposite. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it, well, it's like it's like it's almost like you're on a bike and you're climbing up a hill. You would almost want it to be longer up front uh, and have like some weight up there, the front wheel, to keep you from looping out. When it's real short, it's like 
I, I don't know. To me, it makes sense. It, just everything about it, uh, I like so much more than what I'm used to. And so is it perfect for everyone? I can't really weigh in on that. But my limited experience suggests that it is totally awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's very few. Uh, I mean, if we're strictly talking about mountain biking, there's very few places um, I can see the longer wheelbase specifically being a disadvantage. Maybe when you get into like pump tracks, uh, dirt jumpers, and stuff where you need a lot of real fast. But again, in both of those scenarios, you're talking about uh, tracks that are so smooth that the the benefits, and you're not really climbing either. I mean, you're not seated climbing or trying to get up something technical. Um, it's almost a completely different genre of, of bike riding when you talk about those. That that that's the only time I, where short wheelbase to me makes sense in this sort of off-road world. Yeah. Um, and of course that got me thinking. And I mean, I know I know. Uh, Peter Verdone's done a bunch of stuff on this and I talked to him quite a bit, you know, like his, his, his idea of what he calls a hybrid, of course, which is a, which is a shot across the bow at the gravel world. Uh-huh. Um, um, and, you know, and taking, taking the, what he calls a gravel bike or an all road bike to the kind of extreme um, and I've had some arguments with him on this one because it's like, okay, I, I see where you're going with this and I see what you're doing, but it's like at a certain point, if you've still got drop bars on it and you're going to the extremes of a forward geometry, um, mountain bike, you're kind of the worst of both worlds. Cause there's a lot of other stuff going on. As soon as you get onto soother, smooth, soother. <laughs> smoother pavement, smoother surfaces. It's soothing how smooth it is. Yeah, soother. Yeah, you kind of <laughs> want you, you, the the that long wheelbase is starting to work against you a little bit. Um, you know, like I do a lot of cyclocross racing as well, um, and that I've tried kind of forward geometry cyclocross bike. If you can believe it, it just doesn't work. It's too long for the kind of corners you're doing on what is. Cyclocross seems extreme and stuff, but the surfaces are actually usually pretty smooth just because of the tires you have to use. So you don't have that same kind of uh, bump amplitude to you, that the long wheelbase, that's, I mean, the long wheelbase is really helping you basically as a, as a suspension system. Yeah. It's also helping you uh, in a funny way as a suspension system. And I don't mean because the frame is flexing. I just simply mean the, the angle of attack yeah, is is so much less when you yep. go up and over bumps. Um, in the same way, you experienced this already. I, I it also floored me the first time I, I built a full forward geometry mountain bike, and I thought, oh, can't wait to rip down a hill. But oh man, this climb up to get to that downhill is gonna suck. Yeah, and, and it I'm doesn't. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, oh my god, it like it's it climbs better than it. You know, it descends really well, but the climbing is, like, game-changingly yeah. good. Yeah. You can sit centered in the cockpit. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no more, of the, especially on a hardtail, there's no more of this, like, trying to leverage your ass off the back of the seat to get some traction. You can actually just stand up and pedal or sit and pedal if you, you know, especially if you, the, 
even the more progressive ones now with the really steep seat angles and stuff like that. So, you know, for climbing, you really are just seated in the middle of that bike. Um, and it just yeah. tractors up everything. Yeah, I wish I had a more objective, um, you know, I wish I had like a, a deeper base of knowledge about this because I'm just mostly familiar with the one bike. Well, it had like two inch wide Maxxis icons, which have no grip and it had a yeah. uh, single speed and you know, it's just that you can't compare these things. Now I have like big, uh, I think a 2.5 on the back or 2.4 and it's got big yeah. knobs and like, and I got the 50 tooth, um, cassette, you know, yeah. <laughs> like I can climb now, but yeah. there's, there's a lot of major global changes. So it's, it's harder for me to be objective. And yet still, I'm pretty confident that the weight distribution provided by this long front short rear really suits it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and actually, and, and a nice bonus to this, I don't know if you found this and I mean, I, uh, you said it before. I mean, you made the short the chain stays as short as you possibly could. What's interesting is um, I've been I've been using like uh, um, I've been I've been playing around because in the old days I was also trying to like literally get the tire to almost rub the bottom bracket. I was trying to get it so <laughs> short, and that kind of worked when you know I was building bikes that had front centers that were more like. 730, 740, 750, something like that, because it, you know the the chainstay length that seemed to work best for that was in the kind of 400, 405, 410, yeah, kind of range, and that's I mean that really is like on a 29er with a 2.5 or whatever. That's basically rubber on bottom bracket. Yeah, um, but what's been really great to discover is. Um, uh, I built a couple of bikes for myself to try this out. Um, as I went to the longer front center, I put on adjustable rear dropouts to try to, I kind of knew the range where it might be good. I knew that I couldn't go any shorter than like 405 or whatever. Um, but I wanted to be able to go all the way to 430, 435, 440, whatever, and see where it worked in there. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a real relief just from a construction point of view for building bikes to discover that 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 the sweet spot actually seems to be um i mean and again this is completely ba it totally depends on building for so i don't want to like put a prescription out there that this is the chain stay length people mm -hmm. should be building it's not at all but it is that the the short way of saying is is that it is longer than it used than than i would have normally liked before because yeah. the longer front center also demands a longer rear center. Yeah. The, um, I, th I, when I said it was as short as it could possibly be on mine, I don't think that's totally true. I think it was 425 is what I was, yeah. uh, roughly shooting for on that, which was probably informed by advice from Peter or some of the other people that I talked to when I was designing that. Um, yeah. there was, I used the chainstay yoke from the, uh, Lycan precision Devon, and uh, oh, yeah. I didn't even, you know, that, that had some, some space on it off of the bottom bracket. And then there was space for my tire. And, right. But yeah. yeah, it was definitely tight. And I used my seat tube bender or my tube bender rather uh, uh, to bend the seat tube and um, provide some extra clearance. But I definitely could offset the seat tube further if I felt I needed to. Right. I guess. And oh, your bender has been awesome, by the way. I've been <laughs> bending up seat tubes like Matt. It's, I'm amazed what you can do. With the, uh, uh, like in titanium, like I'm like 35 wall titanium, 
here we go. Uh-huh. See what happens. I'm like, oh. Oh, well, that, that was easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've so done... I've done some real heavy stuff, and yep. I've done some light stuff, and uh, it generally seems to all work. Like most normal bike tubing, unless it's heat-treated steel, it just works. Uh, you know, sometimes yep. uh, on the outside of the bend, it will f- just kind of flatten out a little bit. It'll usually look smooth, but it'll you know you can see that the profile of the tube is not totally round in that point. But uh, yep. it just totally. doesn't ripple or kink things, and I built it partly. I had the idea to build it before I ever thought about building it for other people, just because uh, I wanted to be able to bend all these different kinds of tubes that I would I would rig something up or I'd buy some cheapo thing and, and then I'd scrap a bunch of tubing and I would be so careful on the way in as to not scrap yeah. tubing and then still do it. Just of course. Make oh, it yeah. crazy. I've been, I've been there, done all of that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's just been, that's been, uh, that's been fantastic for, that's Especially awesome. in particular, you know, I've always it's always been okay for bending. Um, like I, I made my own mandrel benders and stuff for doing chain stays and mm-hmm. things like that. But it was the same kind of thing. It's like I always sort of half built them. I got them, you know, good enough so that I was only losing maybe a quarter of the tubes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm like ah, it's good enough. I got bikes to build. Okay, da, da, da. um. But to have a dedicated tool, <laughs> yeah, is, is always is always a nice day. Yeah, um, yeah. I love when I when I design something. I've been working a lot on the frame fixture that I'm going to release the last well the last year, but the last couple of days I've been back into it deep, and it's just cool. Like when you're going to make a bunch of something, you can really justify yeah. going into the weeds on some detail because like you're hoping to sell, you know, hopefully hundreds of this thing over the years. And there's lots of people who are going to spend lots of time using it. And so that detail matters. And when I build stuff, you know, like I built my, I manually machined some manual benders three, four years ago, I bought a rotary table and I made some stuff on my bridge port. And, you know, I just, I didn't put that much time into it because it was already kind of an indulgence to spend a week or whatever making these things. Uh, And I was the only one who was ever going to use them and they just needed to be good enough for me. And and now they're sitting on the floor and I I told my friend Sean Handerhand I'd give them to him and, you know, I'll see him someday. But it's just like, I I never, it's not that good and it's okay, but it's just, it's cool when you have the opportunity to really uh, solve, solve a problem the right way. Or, you know, the same yeah. thing with your process making a bike, you know, you've really figured out how to, how to go about things because you've done it enough times and because it was a worthy thing for you to figure out. Yeah, absolutely. But all you, all, uh, the whole time you're talking, all I can think about is this chainstay mitering fixture I made like <laughs> 14 years ago that I keep meaning to make a new one of because it's a little off. Mm-hmm. It, never quite i always have to compensate and i'm like i just got and you know i don't know i've whatever i built like you know probably running a thousand or more chain stays through this thing and it's just like why can't i i just need to spend a day or two and make another one yeah square you know <laughs> the flip side of that coin is some builders really uh love you know just crude looking tools just get it to work and ship yeah. it and just go on and 
Uh, I think Adam Sklar, he does that a lot where he'll post a picture of something that he made that is kind of like ugly or cobbled together, but damn it, he makes it work and he makes a fine product. So you can't really argue with the result, you know, like he, uh, I remember yeah. years ago, he, he made some yeah. heat sink for something and he said that dog will sink, <laughs> but yeah. it's this ugly thing. I mean, no offense, Adam, but like, it was just this thing. And like, he, he got it done with and he moved on to the next thing. And I made heat sinks. I tried way too hard, man. I was really trying to make them look good. Totally. I have so many of those tools. I mean, I should po I should do a whole post sometime. I have so many just ugly stepchild tools that were that were like, you know, because before that I probably didn't have a tool at all. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, I gotta like, I just gotta spend five minutes and make something to hold this thing where I need it to go or whatever, whatever the whatever it is. And then I'm like, what have I got? I got this. Oh, it's kind of a little too short, but well, if I do this and I tack this on and duct tape this over here, it'll probably be <laughs> fine. And then 10 years later, I'm still using the damn thing. And yeah. you're absolutely right. It works. Uh, it's, it's fine. I've learned its eccentricities, but there's, you know, in this constant, always wanting to like, you know, improve and make things more efficient and stuff like that. I do look at these ugly stepchildren and go, yeah, <laughs> might be time. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, I, um, uh, same kind of thing. Like I, 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 the first, the first fixture I ever bought was an old Henry James. Um, it's sort of the flat plate. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Yeah. Um, well, they had a couple, but forever. yeah, I've seen them. Yeah. It's like the original one. It's just okay. like one square aluminum plate, and then and you use a big protractor to set everything up. Um, and I probably put twelve hundred frames through that thing. I don't know. And wow. it is beat to rat shit. I, I mean, it was only ever designed in the early '90s or late '80s, even to do lugged construction road bikes, right? Mm -hmm. And I have things bolted onto it so I can do like fat bike tandems and <laughs> I had to carve a big shape out of the main uh, the main plate so that I because the, the chain stays are so wide there's yeah. not enough offset <laughs> so I just I just took like a big die grinder with a big chomper on it and just trimmed away at it until the stays fit uh -huh. you know or to do the like the forward geometry, I mean, I don't think you could, I don't think I could set the head angle past um, 65 degrees or something. And, you know, I'm doing some bikes now with like 63, stuff like wow. that. So I would have to cheat the whole drawing. So I basically draw it as if it was steeper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I know what you mean. <laughs> so I'd like, but then you're worried, like, okay, that's a, that's a bunch of math. And every time yeah. you do, every time you do some math, uh, yep. you could get it wrong. Very easily. Yeah, I realized that the the scheme that I have for my frame fixture is that you wouldn't be able to do that. Um, you wouldn't be able to cheat it because there's only one angular adjustment. It's the angle between the head tube and the seat tube. And then the other coordinate points are relative to, to that. So like your head tube oh, is always square to the, the main beam of the tool. Um, and in a way, it's kind of less confusing maybe it's more foolproof or something but uh i was i when i realized that i also realized that for someone who has a sputnik or an anvil or one of these where yeah the head tube only goes to a certain angle if you didn't want to modify that you could just 
you could just rotate your whole drawing and then yeah. and then you would be given different numbers and you would move the coordinate points and then it should produce you something right. that is the same geometry uh right. but man it should. would be easy to screw that up <laughs> yeah should is the operative word <laughs> yeah i think i was just listening to the paul brody podcast you did paul, yeah paul's an awesome friend of mine um i i really missed the uh uh you know social distancing uh, he used to come up and uh, to get away from the city he'd come up and we'd just hang out in uh in my shop and we just build stuff that's awesome um and it was so much fun because he's such an amazing teacher and he's had such a vast knowledge yeah. of and i super missed that it was kind of his relaxation get out of the city come hang out and we just we'd sit and tinker in the shop um but I, that reminded me uh he was doing like a batch of bikes or something and he'd gotten the all the yeah. seat tubes off by five, five degrees. Five degrees. That's a lot. Five yeah. degrees. <laughs> and had to hack them all apart. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. It's a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. <laughs> that's a tough um, spot. Totally. Um, but, oh, just to wrap up the forward geometry stuff a little bit, um, yep. I think there is, I mean, like everything else, that's happened the, the mountain bike world often has a lot to offer the the kind of lugite world of the road world um uh and but you can only take that so far but i think certainly we're going to see a lot more road bikes with i don't think you necessarily want to make them super slack head angles but absolutely longer top tubes shorter stems you already have the forward projection of the brake levers anyway Mm-hmm. Well, brake levers, then the handlebar projection, yeah, um, yeah. then the stem. You're already hanging out way further in front um, than I think is makes sense. Except if you're talking pure road racing, and there's very good reason for putting the wheel where it is, and that's just simply that's aerodynamics, that's drafting. Um, oh yeah, you don't want to yeah. stick you don't want to stick that wheel too far out in front because you want to be as close to the rider in front as you as possible. I mean, I did, I did a ton of road racing, crit racing, track racing in the old days. And it's not something to, you know, it, it's worth making that, uh, um, stability and handling compromise to get, to get you parked as close to the rear end of that guy in front of you. Um, as possible. Um, and so there is some compromise there. Also, I mean, if you're talking crit racing and smooth surface like that, you don't want the wheelbase too long. It it is a it is it is difficult to get around that type of corner. Yeah, yeah. That you see, you know, where you don't have tire slip and the rest of it. Um, so, but I think there is there is definitely a especially for grab my God for gravel bikes or adventure bikes especially where you're not really in packs and stuff like that um absolutely moving towards i mean i no kidding i like i really i want to build a bike for my a a gravel bike for myself that uh, again not super slack head angle keep it in the in the more traditional or i don't know about traditional what's what's traditional anymore but (laughs) in the kind of like 70 degree head angle still like not go all slack but actually go to a zero or even negative stem wow um, yeah to that get would that, be super to get interesting that, to get that long longer front center without getting that 
the weird wheel flop that uh, that a slack head angle would give you. I mean that that wheel flop and and corresponding long trail and stuff works really well in an off road situation. Uh, it doesn't work so well on road. Uh, I don't think. But again, you know, more experimenting, right? Yeah. Um, maybe it is, or maybe we're just not used to it, or whatever. Yeah, or maybe there's some other weird uh, variable that needs to be tweaked in tandem for it to feel right, or who knows. Totally. Yeah. But I think that I think that's where we'll see a lot more progress and experimentation because I think that's the one place we have some room yeah. to grow um, is sort of uh, these all-road adventure bikes um, and what we what we do with that front-end geometry. Also playing around with handlebars. I mean, the, the drop bars, we all want drop bars because they look cool. But the more we go into the more capable, um, capable off-road, the, the harder it is to justify. Yeah. It's like, well, we could, you know, we could just put flat bars and bar ends on, man. Like, <laughs> like seriously, uh, you've got both hand positions. You've got your brakes where you want, your shifters. Everything works really well, uh, you know. Or a lot of this stuff where you take, like, flat bars and then you put bar ends, but they're inbound, so they're inside the grips. So oh, you, wow. You, you, uh, oh yeah. Oh, you haven't. Se- yeah, if you haven't seen that before, I mean, there's some cross country racers who used to do that. Because um, mm-hmm. what it does is it basically, if you put your bar ends there, they're usually they often end up in that kind of 44, 46 apart. So it's like being on the hoods, right? Huh. It's forward projection. You basically got your hands in the same place as you would on the, um, you know, the hoods of a drop bar, right? Yeah. But you have the advantage of going to your full-on mountain bike position when when shit gets real yeah Um, that's uh maybe i'll um i might have to toy with that i keep thinking about when i might do another youtube uh bike frame build video series which is is a, a tough prospect because it just is very resource intensive it takes a lot of time usually i have someone help me shoot it and then my shop is not really configured for bike frame building anymore i sold my manual mail and my manual lathe a while ago to make room and anyway but i I think about building like some sort of clunker or something would be really fun and these ideas that you're having about the handlebars and now i'm like hmm i've thought about doing a handlebar build would be a shorter series where you know like maybe i do like a bull moose bar or not exactly a bull moose but some sort of fabricated thing i could use my bender in it and i could do some different things it would be fun uh but now these ideas i'm like oh man i could like filibrate this thing with these you know anyway oh for sure yeah i think there's i think there's so much experimenting going on there and then you you, you tack on to that like um you know all the bike packing that a lot of people are doing on this type of bike and stuff like that and it's like well having those forward projections that's suddenly an awesome place to to support your handlebar roll, like bag, handlebar bag. Yeah. Um, it just opens up a whole, and I mean, you know, there's, you see, especially with like the Jones, Jones bars. And I mean, there's ideas similar to this floating out there, with all the different alt bars that you can get. Yeah. Um, but it's, it, it, these are all kind of tacked on to existing bikes. And it's like, I want to take a step back and, 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 uh, approach the whole the whole thing the whole bike like, yeah you know where where are we going with this 
like, I mean, you know, the gravel is such a weird word because it means <laughs> different things to so many yeah. different people. I mean, if you're if you're a roadie, a gravel bike means taking a, a rim brake road bike and and putting thirty mil tires on it. That's uh-huh. a gravel bike. If you talk to a mountain biker, gravel bike means um, you know going from two point five down to you know old school two point ones. Yeah, and uh, putting some bar ends and you got a gravel bike. Um, so those are two very different bikes. Yeah. Uh, but there is, but what it does show is that there is this need and, uh, and, and I am, I'm not cynical about this at all. I love and have been building for a very long time what Peter Verdone would call hybrids or what everyone else calls, um, gravel bikes now, what I used to call adventure bikes. It's basically filling in the gap between, yeah road bikes or cyclocross bikes and full-on mountain bikes because and especially i mean you see it so much now with everybody you know a little more self-isolated we're not going to events and stuff like that we're we're, we don't want to be on the road as much anymore because um you know people is you know cell phones you know whether it's more or less dangerous than it used to be is kind of irrelevant the perception that it's more dangerous is certainly there yep and and, uh, and you know, with GPSs and maps and stuff now, it's like, oh, there's this whole world out there. There's all these, I mean, I don't know how it is around where you are, but, you know, BC is logging, right? So there's just thousands and thousands of miles of logging road that go to I don't know where. Let's go find out. Um, and But you might be on pavement for 50K before you get to, you know, to those miles of, listen to me, miles and kilometers, this is a Canadian, <laughs> this is a Canadian thing, I, you know, it's, <laughs> I digress, but it's like when it's really hot, I talk in Fahrenheit, and when it's really cold, I talk in Celsius. <laughs> That's funny. Um, but, you know, the, the, trying to find bikes that, that fill this gap, because often, I do this all the time, I don't know, you probably do too, it's like, you head out on a bike ride, you don't know where you're going to go. Is it going to be on the road? Is it going to be off-road? Maybe a little trail thrown in? Yeah. Um, and suddenly having a bike where you don't have to decide. Um, mm-hmm. may not be the perfect mountain bike. It may not be perfect. It may not be super fast on the road. But, oh, my God, it's great in between, and you can, it'll do both. Um, and I'm, I'm super excited for that part of the industry right now. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's more uncharted, and so for the for the new good ideas that come, there's a lot to be gained from them. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it comes from both ends, right? It comes from the road side, and it comes from, the, and that's why you see all the arguments, all the polarized views, <laughs> because people are coming from opposite ends of the spectrum. But you know, hopefully, hopefully, it'll just fill in this this beautiful unicorn in the middle. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would like to see that. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, that's most of the list of questions, and uh, and I think this one is one of the longer ones I've done in a while. I feel like it's just going really good. <laughs> Sorry so about I, that. No, I feel like it's a particularly really good discussion. So I wanted to uh, I wanted to let it um, run its course here, but uh, I, I tend to ramble. <laughs> I I do too. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna sign off here and I'm gonna make some popcorn. I hope you have a lovely weekend and uh, I look forward to talking to you more sometime because this has been a really Thanks good. Thanks so much, Joe. This really was really great and uh, good luck on the next one. Keep them going, hey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, keep Don't me, keep me honest. Hold me to it. <laughs> <laughs> right on, Joe. Yep. Bye. Yeah.